Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast today. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. Our podcast episode today is supported by Dairy Australia and uh, just a disclaimer that the podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. So today we're going to be looking at the topic of food in residential aged care and food provision in Australian aged care facilities has really been under increased scrutiny um, as the Royal Commission into Aged Care was established in 2018 and their recommendations published in 2021. So in a practical sense, we as dietitians know there's huge variability in meal provision. But now we have some Australian research looking at the impact of food served in residential aged care on health outcomes. The world first research initiative, the Fractures Trial, was conducted by the University of Melbourne and published last year in the British Medical Journal. Today, we're going to get to hear more about the trial from the lead investigator, Dr. Sandra Uliano. Dr. Uliano is a senior research fellow in the Department of Medicine, University of Melbourne. She researches nutrition and exercise across the lifespan, specifically to improve musculoskeletal health. Relative to ageing, her work has focused on food-based approaches to prevent falls, fractures and malnutrition in older adults in aged care. Sandra provided input into the quality and safety standards for aged care and was summoned to present evidence at the Royal Commission and is a member of the National Aged Care Advisory Council. She's a strong advocate for improving nutritional care and quality of life by improved food provision in aged care settings. So welcome today, Sandy, and congratulations on the publication. Thank you, Jane. Yes, it was a long, long piece of work, took a long time to get published, but now it's out there. Everyone can now benefit from the outcomes. Um, and we want to use it. So you're you're pretty well known now for your nutrition research in the aged care setting. Just out of interest, can you tell us a bit about where your interest in the area came from? My initial work was with bones. So obviously fractures is a key outcome and fractures occur a lot in the aged care setting. And even we did some work at the Austin and 25% of all the fractures that came to the Austin were from aged care and 30% of all the fractures. So it's a huge, I look at fractures, aged care has about 6% of people over the age of 65, yet they they have 30% of hip fractures. So it's a huge need. Plus, I've had two parents that have both had to go to aged care. So I saw it from both the inside and as an outside observer and recognised there are lots of areas that need um, improving. Yeah, that's interesting. It's it's a real marker. And we know that obviously people who are going to aged care are probably more frail now, um, sicker than they used to be. And so 
those results probably aren't surprising, but there's obviously it's not inevitable and there's a lot we can do to to improve that care. So you've participated in um, quite a few webinars and spoken broadly about this trial that we're going to talk about, including a um, a webinar for Dietitian Connection Malnutrition Week last year. Can you just remind us a bit about that trial, how you went about it and the key findings of it? Yeah, the trial, the initial outcome, the primary outcome was to reduce fractures in this age group. As I mentioned before, the, the fracture burden is really high in aged care. So we actually um, looked at so many um, sources of funding and we were we finally got funding from Dairy Australia um, and a conglomerate of um, funding bodies from all over the world. We looked specifically at dairy food, that's milk, yogurt and cheese, primarily because they are the main sources of calcium in the diet and a good source of protein. So with this trial, all we did was actually go about improving the food quality. So we didn't use any supplementation. We didn't use any pre-specified or formulated products. Basically, it was milk, yogurt, cheese. You could get off the shelf in the supermarket and apply. So we work with the food service, and that's a really important component of this trial. We worked with the food service team we had 60 facilities, so 30 of them we actually did the intervention in and the other 30 went about their usual menus. Um, with that 30, we worked with the residents, we worked with the food service team to say, what do you like residents to eat? And the chef, what do you and how do you like to cook? And that's a really important thing. So we didn't change the way they cooked. We actually just enhanced what they were doing um, so that they incorporate more of the dairy food. The main outcome was we saw a 33% reduction in fractures. We saw a 46% reduction in hip fractures, an 11% reduction in falls, and we saw that malnutrition um, levels were maintained, whereas in the control group, malnutrition continued. So for me, one of those take-homes is malnutrition is not a normal part of ageing and we shouldn't accept malnutrition um, in aged care for that reason. Yeah, so they're pretty spectacular findings. Um, and can I just ask you quickly, so you, when you talk about not supplementation, vitamin D and calcium as as supplements, were they just part of your standard practice or just didn't, weren't introduced? Or like did you account for vitamin D and calcium supplements? Yeah, one of the key um, primary issues is vitamin D repletion. So what we know now in aged care is about 70% of residents um, are supplemented with vitamin D. The effects may not have been as good if they were vitamin D deficient. So in relation to that vitamin D sufficiency across the board and the average um, mean intake was around, I think, 73 nanomoles. So they, they're, quite, they're doing quite well. Um, in terms of calcium supplementation, if they are on a supplement due to a uh, prior fracture, et cetera, they maintained what they were on. So we didn't alter any of the medical care. Um, it was simply just providing the additional dairy. And in fact, not as many people that had a prior fracture were on supplementation, which was interesting to, to observe. And so how many dairy serves were you aiming for a day? We were just going for the dietary guidelines. So we were aiming right. for a day um, because currently we know our baseline data indicated they're well under two a day. Um, and we know if, if they're consuming that amount, 
they're getting only around 600 milligrams of calcium, which is half the recommended dietary intake, and they're getting under one gram of protein per kilogram body weight. So the reason that was successful is that their intakes were, were um, below standard. Yeah. And what we did is just aimed for the four and ended up with a mean of three and a half servings. Yeah, right. So that was going to be my next question. Did your intervention sites actually get to your target? So, yes, three and a half serves, they did pretty much. And just out of interest, 30 intervention sites, how long did you, how long did this whole thing take? Well, the actual intervention was for two years. Right. So each site had to do this for two years. Um, We had wonderful food service dietitians that worked with the um, food service team. And as I said, it was very individualised. So um, based on the the chef's abilities, the chef's preferences and the desires of the residents. So it was a very um, hands-on type of research. But the key thing, if you looked at the paper, is that the intake was maintained for the whole two years. Mm-hmm. So we know with some interventions, um, intake starts to you know decline over time, whereas we maintained it. So what it was showing to me is this type of method um, is sustainable and it's nothing miraculous. It was just improving food quality. And have you been able to track since the completion of the data collection whether they have continued to maintain that sort of dairy intake? Some have. Some have continued with it. Some have continued with parts of it and some have um, have deemed it too expensive and have not continued with it but the average cost was less than a dollar a day per resident that's that's a really interesting take on it isn't it too expensive in the in looking at the 33 percent reduction of fractures um and the cost of that um, yeah. that's an unusual um attitude to take we're doing um a cost effectiveness analysis at the moment um, to demonstrate that it is cost effective both at a government level but also at a facility level so that we can see what tends to happen is the food budget is often separate and what I'm suggesting is you know yes your food budget goes up by a dollar a day per person but your um, supplement costs may go down we have had antidotal um, indications that supplement use went down um, often a lot of places are now trying to go towards a food-based approach. So, you know, this is showing that if you take on a food-based approach, it is achievable and it is sustainable. Mm, and I think it also shows that there you need the base diet to be really good. So there are going to be some of your uh, residents who are going to need some kind of supplements because they've gone a long way down that track and, and it might be difficult to reverse that. Um, but it's not going to work if you don't have a good baseline diet to start off with. Um, so you mentioned the working with the sites individually. Um, you know, now that there is much more scrutiny on delivery of good nutrition in aged care after the Royal Commission, um, what do you see as the steps to really improving that nutrition? Like, Talking to chefs, obviously, that's important, but it's not just a blanket. You need three serves of dairy a day. You obviously went into more detail than that. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What we need to do, and we don't have it in Australia, some other countries, Canada, do um, have got standards. So they actually have nutritional standards Mm. in food service in aged care. And people may perceive that as being a little bit dictatorial, but I think by standards, it's not... 
um, waving um, a ruler at someone saying, you know, you're not doing well. It's saying this is what residents need to maintain and achieve their um, nutritional status. And then it's about education of how they can actually do that. So if you look at international data, you know, in terms of protein, that's a main focus. You know, we're looking at, you know, between 25 and 30 grams of protein per meal. So it's how to do that. It's, and, you know, we demonstrated it. We were successful with um, two of the three meals achieving that 25. Breakfast was one of the ones, mm. it was around 20, so below what we wanted. But then we weren't aiming to specifically improve each of those meals. Our goal was to provide dairy across the entire menu so that residents could select themselves. So it wasn't, it was more of a provision that they can consume from than an actual, we're going to do this to this meal for this reason. Yeah. So it's always available, basically. It's always a choice. Yeah. It's and 20 grams is a pretty good for a, you know, breakfast is usually the carb heavy type meal, isn't it? So getting 20 grams is, is, is pretty impressive, I would have thought. Yeah, it was just under. Yeah, look, it wasn't bad. As I said, hot breakfasts aren't served very mm. frequently now. And maybe we need to go back to that type of um, provision because the the majority of residents, like we're starting to see a real mix of residents. So we longer the bangers and mash, you know, um, satisfying all residents. But a hot breakfast was quite a common one. And often people were um, used to having a hot breakfast and it's often not served yet we can actually get really good protein intake just simply by having a hot breakfast. And do you think the results of your trial um, are getting through to aged care facilities? You know, obviously dietitians are aware of them possibly, um, you know, people, doctors maybe, and I'm just wondering, like, they're so compelling these results that do you think that that noise is actually reaching the decision makers in aged care settings look at the moment people are aware aged care is is under so much pressure mm. predominantly because of covid the flu you know they're under that much scrutiny yes. but i think at the moment they're treading water and surviving um you know that the the pandemic had a major impact on them so it's more about there's a couple of issues one is um, how to support them to do it. And, and I agree. And what I'm looking at is education so that we can educate. I have done stuff with geriatricians, Victorian geriatrician um, training to educate GPs, to educate geriatricians, to educate dietitians, to educate care staff. To, so it's really what I'm looking at is a community of practice so that we're actually targeting each of the group that are either directly or indirectly involved in the nutritional care of a person. Because for a personal care um, staff worker, when a person doesn't eat a meal, that has really big ramifications on the health of that resident if they're doing it regularly. So that person needs to sort of be flagged and know, yes. hey, there's something wrong here, and then have the ability to go to the clinical staff and say, hey, this person's not eating because the care staff are the eyes and ears yes. of a facility and they know if food's been eaten or not. The chef may not because often the chef is in a complete different zone of the aged care facility. So, you know, if we don't train them that they go, hey, this is not good, look, they ate their dessert and they left all their main and they didn't eat the meat. What does that mean for the potential health of that resident? Yeah. So if we if we pull back and, and focus on dietitians for a moment, if 
Um, we have dietitians listening who are working in aged care and, and you know, a lot of them might be sort of relatively new to this, this space. Um, what's your advice to them when they're going into a facility to try and sort of put this research findings into action? What would you suggest they, the steps they take when they're going into an aged care facility? I think there's there's two there's three things that are important. One is to really find out what the residents want to eat. What do they like to eat? Because sometimes what they want and like is contrary to what we may be thinking they want and like. So don't don't assume we know. Actually, go in there and ask them. Ask them all. If they've got cognitive impairment, ask the family. So it, it, what I'm getting at, you, you need to do a lot of background work. The second part of it is to look at the system, the food service system that's in place, because all the systems are slightly different. Are all the meals made in a central kitchen, and they're going to be sent up? you know, on a trolley, reheated somewhere. So you've got to understand the system so then you can know where you can actually intervene. And probably the primary thing is listen to the chefs, listen to what they like to cook, listen to how they like to cook, what things they like to to use, how they do things, and then, you know, get them to give you suggestions on what they think we you can do so it's got to be a very two-way dialogue there's got to be a lot of listening and not too much telling because telling them what to do could be perceived as um you're telling them how to cook Mm. whereas you're not telling them how to cook but when food comes up that there's often a defense and it's inevitable because people want to blame someone if if a food's not tasty so they want to blame someone so there's often that sense of I'm going to be scrutinised again so that defence goes up. It's not about scrutiny. It's about saying how can we help you enhance what you're doing. So I imagine that um, one of the things that would be really important is actually being uh, wherever the food is prepared at a mealtime to actually watch how that works. Yeah, what you've got to look at the whole process. Like, you know, how much storage space do they have? How much yes. space do they have? There's no point in saying, you know, let's get five, you know, um, 15 kilo containers of skim milk powder when they've got no space for it. So you've really got to look at the system that's there and how you can work with the system. What's their ordering system? How much can they order? When do they order? You know, do we yeah. have storage space? It's more than just, you know, let's get you know, 20 extra kilo of cheese and stick it in the fridge, it's all of a sudden there's no space for anything else. So yeah. it's got to be quite thought thought out and there's not one way to do it. And that's probably the primary thing. So there's got to be a bit of creativity um, because there's not one way of doing it because not one system is the same. Even within an organisation, the systems aren't the same because I'll have a facility of 200 people, I'll have a facility of 50 people, mm. I have those with the kitchen at the dining room, I have those with the kitchen in the basement. So you've got to look at the system that you're going to work in. So it might be time-consuming. Yeah, it, it will be. You, you've mm. got it because if, you, if you're not going to put that investment in, then the changes will be superficial and the changes will not be sustainable. If you want good sustainable change, you've got to put in, you know, a, a bit of effort to it. Yeah, but I feel like dietitians are really well-placed to be that sort of uh, bridge between the clinical and the non-clinical staff. So if they get that right working with food services, then you get that 
translation through to the clinical staff and you get the communication going between those areas because as you say it might be the personal care attendant who's noticing that food is being left um, every second meal uh, and or that notice that someone's on a special diet that they don't need to be anymore so it's just a matter of telling someone do they need to be on it or or they are on it so yeah I think dietitians are really well placed to be able to help there but as you say we probably do need to upskill ourselves on that food service side of it so that we're speaking the right language there. Yeah, right language and also understanding it. I think um, it, it's, as I said, it's a different area to clinical diet dietetics. It's yes. very different. And so if, you know, if, if there is a student, for example, that has an inkling that they may like to work in aged care, then try to do food service-based subjects. Try to do some work experience in aged care so you actually get a feel for it prior because um if you've had no experience and just get thrust into it it can be quite daunting mm. and um you know quite overwhelming and have you heard much even just anecdotally about this you know the ten dollars a day that was talked about widely um as one of the recommendations um to improve nutrition uh have you heard much talk in aged care settings about where that's going or if it's been going or what has been useful yeah look that's i think that's a really difficult topic to to discuss but probably the primary thing is um that if we provide food service standards food standards then one of the things is we need to understand actually how much does it cost to, to mm. produce nutritious foods because I think at the moment we're plucking numbers out of the sky and we actually need to have evidence-based. So if it's $2 a day more can do it, then it's evidence-based. It's not just simply finding a number and saying this is how much we need. That money, the $10 a day, it wasn't entirely meant for food. No. you know, it was to go towards food. Um, Ideally, we see that it does. Um, But as I said, at the moment, I think the pressure in aged care is quite high. And I'd like to ensure in the future that that extra funding is going to food and nutrition, food. So nutrition, but food. And I think you're right that we have to be conscious of all the conflicts that are going on in aged care at the moment and staffing and just they've got so many things they're trying to deal with that we have to um, be careful of the way we put the nutrition discussion to them because they have a lot of things to be trying to consider at the moment. Um, But also, so these findings, whilst it was all in aged care settings, as you said, only 6% of our population over 65 are in aged care. So the vast majority are living in the community. Um, Are there sort of um, recommendations or suggestions you'd give to dietitians who are working with uh, older people who are in the community around dairy, you know, increasing their dairy consumption? Yeah, it's it's the same thing. We've really got to listen to the person. And, and, you know, we talk about a food service system. We have a mini little food service system in the home. So we really need to understand what foods they eat. I'll give an example. Um, If anyone's from, you know, a southern Mediterranean background, they have a cup of coffee for breakfast. And that's a cultural thing. So there's no point in saying, sit down, have a bowl of cereal, have two pieces of toast, have two eggs. Mm. It's not going to happen. So you've got to really listen to the person and find out where 
what they like to eat and then how. You know, one of our strategies as an example was we put Parmesan cheese in soups. So that's that's not brain surgery, but what it actually does is enhances the flavour, it reduces the need for additional salt, yet we've got all this protein in there. So it's really about listening to the person and then working out. So what I'm getting at, you can't have one fact sheet and go, here you go, this is going to do it. It's about really having to tailor it to the person. As an example, you know, you might say, well, fortify your milk. Do they have a bar mix? Mm. Can they... You know, can they actually mix it comfortably? So if they can't, there's no point in saying fortify your milk. And yeah. if you say, well, buy fortified milk, maybe they can't afford the $4 a carton versus the one. So it's about actually really digging in and looking at what they can do. And as I said, it's taking more effort. We have to really kind of consider what the person eats, what they're capable of doing, and how we can accommodate that. Yeah, but the message is still the same, isn't it? That obviously, obviously, um, increasing dairy in any setting is important, or getting up to what the dietary guidelines say. We know now we've got evidence that it does actually have an impact on falls and fractures. Um, so it's important wherever wherever that that person is. I think the other question that sort of um, comes to my mind is that. As I've said, the results are really strong, um, but it does beg the question that if you have an older person who can't eat dairy for whatever reason that is, what are others? Can they get similar benefits from other things? How, how do you go about managing that to get a similar result? Yeah, that the difficulty with that, Jane, is that because we haven't studied that, we actually don't yes. know. If I get a plant-based alternative, so if I get soy products, et cetera, or whatever, there's so many plant-based alternatives, Mm. because we haven't trialled it, we don't know if we're going to have the same efficacy. But at the least, if someone can't consume, now it depends, if they're they're lactose intolerant, we actually provided lactose-free milk. And generally, as part of it, if there were, there weren't many, um, and and also usually yogurt and, and hard cheeses they're quite capable of um, consuming without too much discomfort. But if not, if someone is vegan or vegetarian, you, we can only do what we can with what we've got. So we have to go with those plant based alternatives. I always tell people that if you're going to go with a plant based alternative, you've got to, there's two aspects. One, make sure it is fortified with calcium because really what we're trying to do is get like for like. So if it's cheese, we need to have the equivalent Mm. nutrients in our plant-based cheese and people need to be really aware of the plant-based alternatives because some are actually really low in protein so you've got to be quite careful you can't just go I'm going to use this milk instead of dairy if that's the case because some of them are really low in protein so you're not getting like for like so if I'm having that product and it's got no added calcium and it's low in protein it's not like for like no, it's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, it just goes to show the results of this study, which show that we can be have a real impact on health outcomes, in this case, particularly falls, fractures, malnutrition risk, but it requires as dietitians our food knowledge, um, our product knowledge, uh, our interpersonal skills to communicate with food services, our food service knowledge. There's a lot that goes into actually making sure that these robust research findings are actually translated into practice. But, you know, at least we have 
the evidence there now that it's it's worth pursuing. So, you know, now that you've the paper was published last year, it's obviously been a little while since your intervention has finished. What would you say are sort of the key messages for dietitians who are listening um, about about the trial and the outcomes? Look, I think the key thing is talk to the residents, know what they like to eat. And again, just for example, if a resident says, you know, they like a particular food, then you don't just give it to them the bottom. It's you, People can change their mind and that's yes. one of the things that happens. It's, you know, they have coffee coffee and cake and so they're only just given coffee and cake because that's what they said they liked the first time. So you've got to continually engage with them. Um, it's it's a very worthwhile, I think, if you look at dietitians, it's probably not the sexiest area to work in. Um, it's not glamorous, but it's extremely rewarding because think about your own parents or grandparents. How would you like those people treated? And as a dietitian, we've got the capacity or yourselves, me as a nutritionist, we have the capacity to ensure that your grandparent is, is treated with the dignity that they deserve be provided with nutritious food and in an environment that they actually enjoy eating. So sometimes we have to kind of step out of our own shoes and step into the shoes of the person that we're dealing with. And the same, think about what the chef's under, you know, what are the circumstances that they're cooking in? So how can we assist them in then instead of saying, you have to do this, not that? Yeah, and I think that's that's the key, isn't it? It's a partnership and we're all there trying to get to the same end point. And so we need to really think how we can work most effectively together. So um, I think it's really interesting to talk to you, Sandra, about the paper. Um, and we'll put a link to um, the BMJ publication in our um, notes accompanying uh, the podcast so people can go and have a look at it. And if anyone listening wants to go back and have a look at um, your presentation from last year that you did for us, um, you can go to the Dietitian Connection website. But we very much appreciate uh, your time today, Sandra, and would also like to thank Dairy Australia for supporting today's podcast episode. Thanks, Sandra. Thanks, Jay. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.